Welcome to today's episode of The District, a podcast about politics and culture by the Spectator world. I'm your host, Amber Athey. I'm the Washington editor of The Spectator, and I'm joined by Bethany Mandel, the editor of Heroes of Liberty. Thank you so much for joining me, Bethany. I think this topic we're about to cover until a couple of days ago, no one was really talking about it. And yet it's been a problem, at least since the beginning of the pandemic. And that's the baby formula shortage that is facing parents across the country. I believe recent estimates say that the stock of baby formula is about 40% lower than it should be. Um, So, I mean, you've been following this much longer than other people by way of having multiple kids yourself and also just always being on the ball. So can you give us an update on where the shortage stands now and what parents are really doing to make sure that they can feed their kids? Yeah, absolutely. So this became an issue. It it wasn't, it wasn't a super big issue really until January. Um, And then we kind of, we've had two problems converge into like a mega problem, kind of like ultra, ultra MAGA problem. So I just, I never want to stop using that. It's beautiful. I know. I love it. So the first problem is 46% of our formula stockade or that like our supply here that we use comes from China. So if you look at a map of all of the ships that are waiting in a dock on the Chinese end, and then on the California end, there's a huge backlog of any number of products coming into the United States and being distributed through the United States. So that's 46% of our our stockpile. And then the other issue is one of the biggest plants uh, for domestic production is uh, in Michigan. It's called Abbott. And um, there's some conflicting reports, depending on who you ask, if it's the FDA or Abbott, but um, the FDA shut down the Abbott plant in January because the FDA says that there was uh, a bacterial infection that was linked to formula that was coming out of that plant in Michigan that led to two babies' deaths and multiple uh, hospitalizations of babies. So, um, so that's sort of where we stand now. The Abbott plant is still closed and the FDA will not give them a date on when they can reopen and they're not giving any metrics. And, you know, there was a Daily Mail story a couple, I think it was yesterday. And the Abbott is just like, let us reopen, give us parameters. We want to move forward. We want to like ramp up production. And it's just, it's not happening from the FDA. And there's so many things that the Biden administration can and should be doing. Um, and and they're just not. And so we're sort of at this situation where, and I don't think, I, I, I mean, I can't confidently say this, but I think I can fairly confidently say this. No baby is starving in America right now. But I know mothers who are spending their entire Saturday driving from one CVS to a Walgreens to a Target to whatever, and, you know, placing orders online. And this is costing parents a lot of money. And, um, and parents are making, I think, in my opinion, in the opinion of medical sort of people, not great choices. And that, that's not a judgment on the parents who are making them, like they're sort of forced into this situation, but they're forced into thinking about making their own formula, which has, has real significant dangers. Um, or, you know, transitioning their kids off of formula perhaps before they're ready to be transitioned. Um, usually, so, you know, for your listeners who don't have kids and don't know, because Lord knows I didn't know these things, um, a baby's primary source of nutrition from zero to six months is only formula or breast milk. That's it. And only 35% of babies in America are breastfed at six months old. So, you know, you take a snapshot at six months old, only 35% of those babies are breastfed. 
So, you know, 65% of babies are relying on this as their primary source of nutrition. And then from six to 12, it's, it's their sole source of nutrition, I should say. And then from six months to 12 months, it's their primary source of nutrition. They're able to eat solid foods, but they're not really getting enough to sustain them. And so I know a lot of parents who have a 10 and a half month old or a 10 month old, and they're deciding, you know what, we're done with formula and I'm going to switch this baby to whole milk. And that's not a great place to be. And I understand why these parents are making this decision because, you know, who has time to spend, you know, running around to every different store under the sun trying to find formula. And so they're deciding to transition their babies a little bit earlier than they would have necessarily had to. And it's, you know, it's probably fine, but it's definitely not the ideal. Yeah, certainly. And I know I've, I've seen some people kind of say in this really blase manner, like, well, why don't the parents just breastfeed? Why don't the moms just breastfeed? And there are a lot of reasons why a baby might not be able to get all of their nutrition from solely breastfeeding, or maybe a woman can't breastfeed at all because she has an illness. I mean, there are really so many reasons. And I, it's a little bit ignorant, frankly, for people to say that as, as a sort of judgy way of trying to mom shame. But you mentioned that the Biden administration has some things that they could be doing. I know one thing that's been floated, which is more of a longer term solution, is adding baby formula to the um, national emergency stockpile. What are some of the other solutions that you've been exploring in terms of policy? Yeah. So uh, Alyssa Rosenberg at the Washington Post wrote a fantastic column that I think everybody should go read if they're really wanting to do a deep dive into this issue. Um, but this, the stockpile idea is is not a bad one. But we need to, first of all, we need the FDA to be more efficient. The FDA dropped the ball in a couple different ways. They got, and you can read about this in Alyssa Rosenberg's reporting, they got a report from a whistleblower uh, back in October of 2021 that there were issues in this plant. They didn't talk to the person for two months. They didn't talk to them until December of 2021. And then they didn't act on it for another month after that until January of 2021. And then babies died. So perhaps if the FDA had moved a little quicker, um, that wouldn't have happened. And now, again, we're saying perhaps the FDA should move quickly and determine one way or the other, like what's going on with this plant? What do we need to do? And a lot of, I mean, we saw this, I have a relative who, who runs nursing homes and he in the middle of the pandemic, when he had patients dying left and right, the, um, the health department would come into his building and they would say, so you don't have enough staff, da, da, da. and they were doing these inspections and just putting his back against a wall, basically. And he was like, so help. Like, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. I'm short-staffed in a pandemic. And it's sort of the same thing with the FDA right now. Like, the FDA needs to go in there and say, what needs to happen so that we can open this plant tomorrow? And then the FDA needs to say, we will help you get to that point. It's not just on Abbott. This is a national emergency, and we will use federal resources to make sure that Abbott can reopen and that every single domestic formula company can be operating literally at 24-7 speeds, and also that the American government will eat the cost of that additional labor force so that the cost of all of this isn't then passed on to the parent consumer um, because everything baby-wise is being hit really, really hard by inflation. 
And parents are paying through the nose right now for formula in a lot of different ways in their time. And, and in, you know, I, I, I know of people who there's a woman in Boston, I, I spoke to her uncle, who's been FedExing her canisters from Ohio overnight. And so she's paying for that. And, you know, parents are paying for this um, shortage in a lot of ways. And the federal government needs to stand up and say, we will make sure that that this cost isn't passed down to you and that you have ample supply. Yeah. And I get the sense that this this industry is obviously such a, a severe problem just because of the nature of of why people need this product. But I get the sense that this is a problem for a lot of manufacturing plants, whether it was meat processing or diapers, some of these other other products because of the lockdowns and the really intense quarantine measures that were put in place by either private companies or the federal government. I mean, the CDC was recommending people stay home for two weeks at first when they got COVID. And when you have people who need to be going in and manufacturing products, particularly when people are really stockpiling goods so that they don't have to leave their homes, that is a huge shock to manufacturing plants. And it was a problem that you know happened not just with baby formula, but really across the industry. And I don't think we really fully grappled with just how bad lockdowns and quarantines were for our ability to create products domestically. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, when the when the pandemic first started, uh, I had a six month old, I want to say, and she was totally breastfed. And when I started seeing toilet paper flying off the shelves, I got a canister of formula. And again, she had never taken formula. I had no intention of giving her formula, but I was like, you know what? Anything could happen. And what if I get you know sick and hospitalized, and she needs food, and and it's going off the shelves? And I, I think. I think a lot of parents did what I did and, you know, picked up a little bit more, not just to, to hoard, but also like, you know, I'm it. When you're it, it can be a little stressful and you always need to sort of have a backup plan. And that's also like a sort of another scary thing about this shortage is, you know, 35% of babies are formula fed or um, breastfed. But, you know, I'm one of those 35%. Actually, now when when a baby hits a year old, it's actually down to 15%. So, but I still, I always keep a, a package of formula in the house because if I get, you know, sick or hospitalized or whatever, on the drop of a dime, the last thing my husband needs is to be running out to, to CVS, you know, I'm, as I'm in an ambulance or something. And so, I mean, this, this has an impact on every single baby in America. And, um, and that's part of why, like, you know, I was writing about this right from the start, because this is, this has become a little bit of a mommy wars thing when really it's just a war on babies. Yeah. And, and that war on babies, that's an interesting point because to me, the lack of concern about this until very, very recently, I'm, I'm, my mea culpa is I don't have kids. So like it would take me longer to realize that this is an issue anyway, but the larger media, there are a lot of parents who work in the media and it kind of blows my mind that until very recently, this was not really reported on at all. And I wonder if that speaks to our larger lack of national care for children, which we've seen sort of play out in a number of, of different ways. And I, and I know you've been really vocal about the effects of masking on kids. So, I mean, walk us through that because I think that is a, that's a real, this is a real reflection of that lack of national concern for kids. Yeah, no, absolutely. 100%. And I think also, there's a little bit of a shame aspect that is being put on society, because the the initial response is always, well, why aren't you breastfeeding? It's that mommy wars, like, well, why don't you care about your baby enough to breastfeed? And I was happy to write about this issue right from the start, because like, I'm Teflon. 
Like I am breastfeeding and, and I'm still concerned because it turns out you can just be like a human being and, and be worried about children. But the, the national sort of lack of concern about children, I mean, the last two years have really highlighted it in a really, really disturbing way. Um, New York city is still masking two year olds with no end in sight. Um, and no one's like, if you look at the pictures of the Met Gala, if we were a society that cared about children, the number one question every single celebrity would have gotten was, do you know that tomorrow at preschool, two-year-olds in New York City are going to have to mask? How do you how do you feel about that? What do you think? And instead, we've just completely blown past all of that. And we've blown past a lot of impact on babies and children and teenagers over the course of the last two years. And no one asked any questions. And, um, and now all of a sudden we're seeing the mental health effects and the physical effects. And um, it'll be difficult to sort of measure, you know, if this formula shortage keeps on going on and on, it's going to be hard to measure the developmental impact on babies right now because we're already screwing these babies in other ways developmentally. So how will we know? Like, you know, the, the drop in IQ points, was that because, you know, people were DIYing formula or because, um, or because they weren't seeing faces their entire babyhood? Yeah. And anecdotally, at least in my generation, and I think you, you're a millennial too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I've noticed this among millennials, especially there's this really selfish attitude towards families and children. And you see a lot more young women, especially saying that they want to be child free. But when they say that they talk about children in a really like denigrating manner, um, as if there's something that is like they talk about unborn children, by the way, when we're looking at the Roe v. Wade protests as parasites. And then they think that born children are just something that destroys your life and makes you incapable of having a job or being able to travel and is is just totally ruinous to everything that you want to do. And that attitude, I think, really lends itself to some of these more harmful choices we're making in regards to how we treat children related to, you know, public health measures and things like that. And I don't know where that attitude came from, but it's, it's so prevalent with people my age. It's really upsetting. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I will disagree with you a little bit on, you know, where this is coming from. There was a really interesting, um, sort of conversation between Janet Yellen, who's like, you know, this old white rich lady and Senator Tim Scott yesterday. Um, and they, um, they had, they had a really disturbing conversation about, you know, the importance of, of abortion and the importance of, of women being able to terminate pregnancies. And she said, it's, the issue is about the ability of women to plan lives that are fulfilling and satisfying for them. The implication is motherhood is neither fulfilling nor satisfying. Janet Yellen has a baby or she doesn't have a baby. She once had a baby. Now she has a child. And I, that, that'll be a therapy session, I hope. <laughs> but I mean, this is the societal message from Janet Yellen all the way down. And, you know, we are the children of that, of her generation. Right. And, um, you know, when when we have people like her saying, you know, abort, we need abortion because uh, women are unable to plan lives that are fulfilling and satisfying. We're not seeing enough um, positive representation of motherhood. And this is something, there's a, one of the best columns that I wrote for Deseret News. I'm a contributing writer there. And I've been writing about the formula stuff for Deseret also. Um, 
but I wrote a column, I don't know, maybe like a year ago, motherhood has a modern PR problem. And it's, you know, it's this continuation of our, our generation's desire to do nothing but complain. And so, you know, I'm a victim. I have, uh, I have like all of these things wrong with me. And so when you talk about motherhood, like, yes, obviously it's hard. It's physically hard. It's draining, like all of these things. Yes, sure. Given. It's also just a joy and it's, it's wonderful. And I think that people my age, I'm in my mid thirties, are maybe reticent to talk about that because they don't want to be like, oh, I'm showing off. But like, hi, I have five children. And, you know, one of the things that I hear most is like, how are you still alive? And I'm like, yeah, I'm tired for sure. But I mean, I'm very happy and I love my children very much and they bring me a lot of joy and fulfillment. And, you know, and and I think that this is also a, a byproduct of how we talk about motherhood on the right and parenthood on the right. It's a sacrifice. And like, I'm not a martyr. I don't love, like, I'm not like self-flagellating. Like I had a lot of children because they, I liked them. And so I had another one and then I liked that one. Imagine and so that. I had another one and I enjoy this. Um, and if I didn't, I wouldn't have done it. And I, I've heard from so many people. I mean, I write a lot about motherhood and parenthood and all of these things. And the number one thing I hear from people is, oh my God, I wish I had started sooner. I waited until I was 35 because everyone told me my life was going to be over and I wanted to live my life before I ended my life by bringing another life into this world. And then they're 35 years old and they have a baby and they're like, oh, this is delightful. I'm feel, I feel really fulfilled and, and happy. And I wish, and now you're 35 and like your advanced maternal age when you hit 35 and pregnancy and all of these things become more difficult. And, um, and you know, the biological clock is ticking and um, people are sort of forced into smaller families than they necessarily would have wanted to because they put it off because they were told over and over and over that it was a miserable experience. Yeah, we really did have it drilled in our heads from a young age that, you know, women had to to step up and be careerist in order to really reach their full potential. And motherhood was not really spoken about as, as that level of fulfillment. And I think it's so important for us to be able to put positive representations of motherhood out into the ether. Um, I, can, I, can I plug really quickly? No, please plug. So I, I, have a, I have the children's book series, Heroes of Liberty, and one of our first three books was Amy Coney Barrett. And you know what we plug? Motherhood. She is, she, get, she got to the pinnacle of her career and also is a mother of seven. And that's not a message that girls are getting enough nowadays. And um, and it's reflected in the birth rates. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to call back real quick to the beginning of the podcast too, when I said you have multiple children, because I never at any time know exactly how many you have. So thank you for clarifying that it is five. <laughs> Me either. That's so embarrassing. Um, but also, I think you would agree that I, I mean, understandable. <laughs> when when we told some of our relatives that we were pregnant the last time, they were like, so how many is this? And I'm like, I feel like you should know. Like, Amber, you don't have to know. But like, Uncle Rich really <laughs> should know. It's number yeah. five, Uncle Rich. It's number five. Noted. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time and uh, you know exploring the issue with me. Bethany Mandel, editor of Heroes of Liberty and a contributor to Deseret News. And we will leave it there. We'll see you guys next time on The District. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. 
And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available. 